It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. For years, Dr. Maggie Zingman has driven her SUV across the country in a search for answers. But this is no ordinary SUV. It's decorated with hot pink and purple butterflies. Images of a beautiful young woman are plastered across all four sides of the car. Beside her are the words, caravan to catch a killer. It's a traffic stopping approach, but that's exactly why Maggie does it. 19 years ago, her daughter, Brittany Phillips, was found raped and suffocated in her apartment in South Tulsa, Oklahoma. She was killed just shy of her 19th birthday. To this day, Brittany's murder remains unsolved. That's why Maggie is on a mission to collect new information, answers, and justice for her daughter. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. At the time of her murder, Brittany Phillips was a student at Tulsa Community College, only about an hour away from Maggie, who lived in Chandler, Oklahoma. September 27, 2004, was the last day that Maggie spoke to Brittany. Later that evening, she called Brittany again, but didn't get an answer. Three days passed. Maggie kept calling her daughter, but never heard back. Authorities arrived at Brittany's apartment to perform a wellness check, only to discover a heartbreaking crime scene. From the moment Maggie heard the devastating news of her daughter's murder, she made it her mission to catch Brittany's killer. For years, Maggie has traveled across the country, telling Brittany's story and raising awareness about her case in the hopes of new information coming to light. Today, Dr. Maggie Zingman joins me to discuss her journey and why she advocates for other families of cold case victims as well. Dr. Zingman, you called your daughter on September 27th, 2004, and she didn't answer. Can you describe the events that unfolded from that point on? Yes. Well, on September 27th, initially, I did talk to my daughter, um, and it was later in the evening when I called, when I didn't get an answer. But initially I had talked to her because she was upset. She was at um, uh, urgent care and had always had these um, sinus issues, especially in the fall. And so she'd been sitting there for three or four hours, um, was upset because she couldn't get in, called me. And I said, well, you know, I'll take care of it. It was at the beginning of the week. It was a Monday. I said, let me see what I can do. And then you'll come up this weekend and we'll 
talk about it and I'll get you in to see one of my doctors because I was living about 50 minutes away because I had just started that February and this was in September at a job at a female prison that was about two hours from Tulsa. So I was living halfway between Tulsa and there. She said, okay, I'll talk to you later. And what I knew is she and her friend, she was going to drop her friend that she goes to school with. They were at the North Campus um, of Tulsa Community College. She was going to drop her friend off in South Tulsa and then go to her apartment, which was in Tulsa between 61st and 71st Street. Um, I called her later that night just because I always do like a typical mom, make sure she got home. Didn't get a response. So I thought maybe she was just upset. She went to bed, didn't think anything about it. So then the next day during work, I tried calling her again, didn't get a response. But I also knew that she had very hard Tuesdays and Wednesdays at school at the junior college and that she was often at school late. So I didn't think anything about it. So that's the 28th and the 29th. Wednesday was the 29th. Then on the 30th, it was Thursday and I was living in Chandler then. And I gave her a call. And uh, as I've said before, it was the typical mom message of Brittany. I know you're okay. Please give me a call. I know you're fine, but you know how I worry because there have been other times in her past where she wouldn't call for a day or two and I get all upset and then everything was fine. So I was expecting a friend from Chicago who was coming down to visit me that evening and there was a big storm and it delayed him. And at about 1 a.m., I received a knock on the door in my 100-year-old house in Chandler and this young sheriff was standing there in the rain. I mean, it was like out of some weird movie. And he just quickly held a piece of paper in his hand. He goes, are you Maggie Singman? I said, yes. He said, you need to call Tulsa police. Your daughter's been murdered. That was all he said. Yeah. So as when a lot of times when I talk about this murder, I said that was one of the first things that down the road I knew I had to educate PD and other people on about notifications and stuff, because at that moment it overwhelmed me. I mean, I remember just grabbing a piece of paper and him leaving and me just sort of falling back against my stairs. And when stuff like that happens, you sit there and go, what should I do? What should I do? And so you think unrealistically, like, I was thinking, um, who should I call? Should I call my parents? But no, they're in New York. They're asleep. I can't wake them up. Should I call my best friend? No, I shouldn't call her. She's in Tulsa. She helped raise Brittany. What should I do? And so, I mean, it's all that irrational thinking because, of course, you're going to call your parents. And I called them, and, and you know, I could hear the devastation in their voice. And within six hours, they had my whole family flying into Tulsa. And then I called my friend and she and her husband came up because I said, I don't know if I can drive all the way to Tulsa. And so I um, had her and her husband drive up and typical of me all the time. I get into this mode where part of the way I, that I deal with things is taking care of other people. And so halfway down, she was driving with me in the car and her husband was following us. And it was early stages of cell phones, but I think we did call him halfway. And I said, I've got to do this on my own because Carol had raised Brittany, helped raise Brittany since she was five. And um, I didn't want her to walk into who knows what. So um, I made her get out and they said, you know, just call us the minute you need us there. And so I drove the rest of the way 
by myself and I came upon the apartment complex and it was still dark outside. There was just a little bit of sun coming up and you could see all the bright lights in the apartment. And I walked in there and nobody was in there. I just walked in, you walk in towards the living room, it's upstairs and then in the living room and I'm walking in and I don't see the two cats that she was watching for me till I moved. And all of a sudden this officer comes out of the room and he says, uh, what are you doing here? And I say, well, I'm her mother. Can I see her? And he says, well, I'm just watching over the crime scene, but she's not here. This was only six hours after I was notified. And what he told me was that she had been identified by her license. And, you know, before all this, I thought life was like, you know, the crime shows like CSI that, you know, I got to identify the body. I got to do all those things. Well, he didn't tell me anything. And he was just some young cop, you know, but I was never told that I could see the body. So another lesson, you know, that uh, you have to give the parents a chance to understand whether they can see the body or not. And then, um, he said, but if you want to wait here, the detective should be here around 6 a.m. And that's when I first met the detective. So I found out later my son was notified by Tulsa police with two police officers with a chaplain. And they had a wrong address for me because I'd only moved about five months earlier. And so because they couldn't find me, they just called the Lincoln County Sheriff. And that's how I got my notification. But at least my son, Joshua, was notified, you know, in the correct way. Just so that I understand the sequence of events, when you received that horribly inadequate notification with the just unfathomable news, and they said contact Tulsa PD, were you able to contact and and have a POC there so that you, when you were driving to the apartment, someone had told you, yes, meet us there. Like you, you had those. Yeah. Um, decision tree of yours was blessed in that way. Yeah, it was, you know, because when the young sheriff said, your daughter's been murdered, I went, what? No, no, you're wrong. You're wrong. You know, it's, she hasn't been murdered. You've got it mixed up. And so at least for those moments, I was going, you know, it's not really happening. But then I did call Jeff and um, Jeff Felton, who ended up being one of the best detectives for nine years. Um, and he was very sweet. He said, I can't really tell you anything. When you get down here, I have to do some stuff down at the police department, but I will try to be there as soon as I can. So, yes, I did know that he was coming there. I thought that just when I walked in, he would be there, though, I guess, you know, because it took me a couple of hours after I called him to even get to Tulsa. So you were told, you were essentially confirmed, um, yes, it was her, these, this terrible news. Then you wait at her apartment, and then when Detective Felton arrives, did you learn then about what law enforcement knew at that time about her death? At that point, they said they thought she was raped and suffocated. He said that they thought... And important words, they thought she had been dead for three days. So that would be sometime, what they told me was sometime between 9 p.m. after I talked to her on that Monday night till 8 a.m. on that next Tuesday on the 28th. And that's what supposedly the medical examiner 
had said, you know, and he said, from what I remember, you know, because she had been dead, because, you know, her body was swollen in some ways that if there were marks of the suffocation, I mean, I, I don't remember telling them telling me if there was or wasn't. I just remember he said a lot of the evidence is hard um, to get. I remember them telling me they weren't sure whether they got DNA from uh, the different swabs because, you know, in those days, it wasn't quickly analyzed. Uh, what they said was there's a good chance that it being three days that she was dead and very minuscule DNA that we might not be able to get anything. So, you know, and back then, DNA analysis is so different than it is now. So I was hopeful, but I was also still in that CSI mode of, oh, we have possibility of DNA. It's going to be solved right away. You know, and and so... He told me where she was found. Then he started asking questions like, do you, because nothing in the crime scene had been disturbed. So he said, do you notice anything out of the ordinary? And I said, no, her living room looks like her normal living room, messy, books all around, books half open, like she was studying them. Her closet was messy. She had a bowl where she, I guess she took off her costume jewelry and stuff. Nothing seemed missing, you know. Um, there were some cans around, but, you know, he said, do you know she had people over that night? And I didn't think she did because usually she was so tired she'd come home from school. So the cans that were around could have been from the weekend because her best friend, the boyfriend, and some other people were over at the apartment. So he was asking a lot of questions, some of which, you know, I didn't know, and then asking about friends and old boyfriends. And then he had the very interesting um, question of, were you aware of the entry into the attic? the common entry into the attic. And I said, no. And he is, he's like six foot three, I guess. Um, and he went into the attic and with his hands, he could touch the little square. You know how some attics just have a square little thing you can push up. He pushed it up and pulled himself up. He said, and back then he said, and we keep getting conflicting stories now, and I'm trying, a young student took a video of up there, but he said that there's a common access up there, that each of the apartments in the second floor, because Brittany was second floor, have an attic access like that, where I guess, you know, um, people could store things or anybody working cable, telephone, because back then there were still a lot of telephones, you know, that they could crawl in up there. So for many years, we've wondered about that attic access. I think they went up there and possibly looked for evidence. I don't know if they found it, one, because I don't remember from way back when, and two, ever since about the third year that the second detective took over and now Tulsa police do not communicate with me and don't remind me of when I have questions asked. Jeff Felton does. You know, he stayed in touch. Mike Huff, who was head of homicide, he stayed in touch. He's part of a cold case group that Tulsa police will not allow to look at the case. But that's a whole nother story. We're going to take a quick break. More from our guest after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. 
when Detective Felton, you said, shared with you where she was, how she had been found, can you describe, if you're comfortable, um, those details and how how she was found? What was the catalyst for, you know, who who found her first? Why and when were police called if they found her? And where was right. she? Can you give us those details? Yeah. Um, as I understand it, on the 30th, which would have been that Thursday when I left the message and when Friday I got the notification that a friend that she went to school with on Monday and Wednesday um, came by because she wanted to see if she was sick or something. And I can't fully remember if the door was ajar or it just looked odd because all the lights were on. And I think the door maybe was open. It's hard to say it's been 19 years. And I've told this story so many times. Sometimes I forget if I was told that or not, but she said something looked odd. So she called her father and her father back then, I think was a district attorney or had been. And he said, do not go in, call the police to do a wellness check. So she called the police. And what I found out later is my daughter's best friend was also, I knew he was a Tulsa police officer, but he and his partner were initially called on that wellness check and they got called to another crime scene. And so if he had come in there, Brittany had been up at his house, her best friend's house numerous times since she was about in seventh grade. And so it would have been like him walking in, on his daughter. So, you know, again, me always trying to also think of others. So, but, and so then that's when they did the wellness check. They found her, um, off of her bed, found her dead. And that's when they notified my son, like I said earlier, and in the long run notified me and took her down to the medical examiner's office and stuff. So that's how I was notified. I mean, how we talked about So the way that the apartment looked when you talked about the books out and Brittany on her bed, um, did it look like she was in the middle of studying when all this happened? Or it looked like books were around, but she could have been sleeping? Yeah, it, it could have been, you know, Brittany, like most college students, um, was never the clean freak people go you know, so it looked like she had been studying, but uh, if I talked to her at nine, she was getting home pretty late and she had early classes. And from what it looked like, she had been in bed, but they don't know that totally. I mean, there's ideas that she could have been dressed after the assault, that her clothes were off, you know, that clothes were put back on. I mean, there's so many questions about how she was, was she really killed in the position she was or did it get moved? Um, you know, the words defense, um, I think I remember when I was there that there was, I forget what the blue spray is that they put on things to find fingerprints, mm-hmm. um, that, that they had done that all over the wall. And I think they found, you know, something that she had defended herself or she was pushed up against the wall. So there was uh, stuff there. There was, like I said, there was um, possibility of DNA inside her. There was liquid on the sheet and they didn't find till later. And this was out in the media when they discovered it, that six months later, he said, I just need them or the, the DNA 
analyzer um, said this, or both of them said it, they wanted, decided to reanalyze the sheet, and that's when they found the DNA that they used for about 17 years as the main profile to compare against the suspects, the DNA from blood and semen. And that was the DNA that then in 2019, C.C. Moore analyzed and made a direct hit on, which then Tulsa police never publicized. Can you share a little more details about that? Um, We've had the honor of talking with C.C. Moore. She's a familial genealogist and her work with her private lab and the impact she's made on criminal justice and cold cases is sort of incomparable. She's an incredible Mm -hmm. uh, scientist. And this case is technically a cold case. And your advocacy has centered around not only finding justice for your daughter, as you drive across the country with an SUV wrapped with her face on it to make sure no one forgets about Brittany and that justice can be ultimately achieved some semblance um, but also your advocacy for others and other families so they don't go through what you went through to learn that there was indeed an identification made from a DNA profile that law enforcement has not carried the ball further on is, I mean, it's disheartening at a minimum. Can you describe more about what's going on there? So the reason that they never took that DNA any further was because after they made the direct hit, they went like you, you're always supposed to, you know, got another DNA thing, interviewed him and decided he, because of all the other evidence they had, he wasn't our killer. Um, so, and, and there's a variety of reasons that they decided that, but none, none of us were that sure that it was. But the big problem with it was that one, they, you know, I used to be real careful about these things, but. I'm tired and I'm not going to be, I can't be careful about anything at 19 years because it's a 19 year cold case. And sometimes, you know, they say, well, don't share this, don't share that. You might hurt the case. At this point, I think the truth has to come out about what's been happening. Um, And when CC Moore made a direct hit, I went to media. I was all the way in Washington state and I drove home in three days to get back to the, so that we could break the news. And the way Tulsa police broke it was that they got a tip from the picture, which we got a lot of tips from the picture because CC Paragon also did a phenotype picture for us about a year before they got the direct hit. And that brought a lot of um, tips. And so, but they said, it was a tip from the picture, and that individual ended up not being the killer. The problem with that is when you say it was a tip from the picture, not our killer, versus the DNA had a direct match, it was that person's DNA, and he's not our killer when you say it's just a tip from the picture, then people still assume it's Caucasian, couldn't be any other culture because, you know, they really focus on this is the DNA's owner. So it, does that make sense? It left a lot of um, discrepancies about, you know, who they were looking at. It possibly lost a suspect because, I mean, it was great that the picture gave us all these suspects, And because the DNA was found in her apartment and because it really looked like it had to be the killers, 
when you say the picture got us a tip and it's not a killer, people are still going to assume it's that Caucasian guy. What I'm hearing is that that law enforcement had an explanation for why a person's DNA was in the apartment and or on your daughter's body, on her person. And so that explanation would have involved either a form of consent or a form of historical presence. Like it was, yes. it was already there or she, that was, the DNA was that not, yeah. DNA was not found. This DNA was not found on her body. This DNA, which they sent off, which I understand why they did blood and semen from the same person was found on the bed sheet and a little blood spot somewhere in the apartment. The explanation was that a friend and her boyfriend, her best friend, this has already been out there, slept over the night, Saturday night, as they often did. Not often. The best friend told me it's like two or three times because the best friend was a year younger than Brittany. And she said she told the police, but they didn't seem to remember that. Um, And so when, for years... They never said anything, which doesn't necessarily make sense, except that I had to teach a lot of people about DNA, and I don't think them as 17-year-olds really understood about DNA or anything. But there was other DNA that could have been sent off, like underneath the nails, like from the rape kit. None of those were sent to CC, just the blood and semen. And I had to, after the um, phenotype picture was made, I learned from some people that they didn't even want to do the genetic analysis. And when I was told that, um, I ended up calling TPD and said, why aren't we? And then they finally did it. The genetic analysis now that OTHRAM is doing only is being done, I believe, because I got funding from Jensen and Halls, when I did their Murder Squad podcast, um, mm. they gave us $6,000 and it was going to go to Parabon and then Eddie Majors, the second detective before he um, retired, decided it was going to go to OSRAM, which now, you know, they've done a lot of successful things and, you know, I'm, I'm counting on them now and stuff, but I still think it was bizarre that they didn't send it back to where the first DNA analysis happened. And this case gets very confusing as time goes on, you know, with the DNA that they initially sent out, the DNA now, the future, uh, the most recent things. I mean, you know, somebody has created a timeline which explains some of this, but these are just a few of the things that happen, you know, and why they never, and they still don't say that it was the direct hit that brought him to the person. So can I make sure that I understand is what I'm hearing is that you're saying another couple had, were intimate in Brittany's bed. Is that what it is? And so it was a consensual encounter and therefore the blood and semen belonged to another, belonged to a male who was having sex with another female, but just in Brittany's bed. And that, that is why, yes, there was a match, but that is why it is not considered to be a subject or suspect at all in this disappearance, in this murder. And that you're saying that there are genetic profiles or there were there was DNA collected from a rape kit and from Brittany's body and sheets that aside from the profile we just discussed that have not been analyzed you feel to 
an appropriate degree? Is that an accurate? There are some being analyzed now by OSRAM. Does that There's still other profiles, huh? Yes. Does yeah. That give you hope then? Okay. Yeah, it does. Um, but it doesn't that it took so long for this profile to be sent. It should have been one of the first profiles. You know, it's not going to change anything. A lot of people think, oh, we just solve it. It's going to bring me closure or something. But it's not going to change anything. But it's just this delay after delay after delay after delay that any other family dealing with this could be just devastated. And that's where I get back to my trying to do this for other people. So, you know, back in the day, I understand it was very expensive and they could only send one thing off. But it took um, the second detective over a year or two to decide what DNA profile to send off to Othram. And then it didn't even happen until he retired, um, which doesn't make sense. I mean, yes, it's a costly and stuff, but I got the funding for them two years before they even sent it off and stuff. So there's other. Yeah. You know, the 19 years and the, the law enforcement investigation that ensued. So it's my understanding detective Felton retired a few years later and you mentioned a second detective and then a third coming on. Can you describe for listeners who are hearing this for the first time, what that investigation looked like? And obviously we've, gleaned the tenor thus far. It seems like there was delays and confusion, but you've mentioned there were communication issues with you. And can you just sort of describe um, what that aftermath of your daughter's murder, what that looked like for you as her parent? For the first nine years, Jeff Felton, the head detective, Mike Huff, who was head of homicide, um, Chief Jordan, they all communicated with me. Um, you know, maybe it was every couple of weeks or something, or if they couldn't, didn't have anything, they would say, we can't, we don't have anything. Or if they had some information, they learned to trust me saying, we can tell you this, but you can't share it with media. It could hurt you, hurt the case. They taught me all about, uh, you know, forensics and, and cold cases and all these things. And then around 2011 or 12, Jeff, after 20 years, retired and Mike Huff was still there for another year. But again, I was spoiled by them. Whenever I traveled cross country in those early years, I would hear horror stories of lack of communication. But I always applauded my people because they just constantly were there. Or if they didn't communicate right away, I understood, you know, because they would say it's, nothing's going on. We're busy. We can't get to you right now. But they always, you know, at least let me know. They treated me with respect. Eddie Majors came on and initially um, he seemed to trust me. And then for some reason he thought I had shared something which I hadn't and he totally shut down. And then as you know, when he, we got the Parabon sketch, the phenotype sketch, I thought that was great. That was movement. We got tips on that. And then even sending the stuff off to CC Moore, I, uh, you know, I was getting communication from some other people. So it wasn't, so bad until around 2019 and the minute we had that hit really it started in 18 but the minute we had that hit um I wouldn't get calls back I would send him tips he wouldn't even tell me if he received them I told people that to call them they wouldn't receive then it started with the um how they represented the suspect um and after that it's just been a communication shutdown after the when you use dna profiles 
for 18 years, 17 years to compare against this suspect and that suspect over probably a couple thousand suspects, a million in, in, in CODIS, the national database, you end up saying, well, you can't say rule out, but you can end up saying, hey, this didn't get a match. This didn't get a match. This didn't get a match. So when you say this DNA profile that we've used for 17 years is no longer a suspect, which they didn't say, they just said it, the picture got it. But in reality, the DNA, because Eddie's words to me were when he called me and told me, he said, CeCe Moore made a direct match. We interrogated him and he's not our killer. So those were his direct words. When you say that the direct match is not the killer, what happens to all those suspects? It was like I've been told that Brady had been murdered because when he said, and it's not our killer, that meant all of our suspects went back to ground zero. And so I started saying, you know, one, why are you not sharing that it was the DNA match so we can get more? And then are you going back over these suspects? And that's when I really started pushing for cold case groups because I had had some behind the scenes, including Sheriff Regalados here in Tulsa County, asking to help the case. And from that moment on, after that match was made, they've refused any cold case assistance. I have national groups. I have Cheryl McCullum Max group. Um, I have the um, uh, Retired Investigators Guild wanting to help. I have Sheriff Regulato that has Mike Huff, um, who was head of homicide on it, retired FBI's, retired DEA's. And they were seemingly working with us a couple of years ago up till this April and suddenly this April, they said, no, we're not going to use them anymore. Um, I just talked to the detective today, which was the first time in six months. Um, and he could not say why they're not allowing the cold case group because he's the only cold case detective for Tulsa. They have 300 cold cases and he's the only detective and yet they refuse cold case help. I'm making it very simplistic, but, um, you know, it, it's just, it, again, it's not going to do anything for me. It's not going to bring Brady back, but I just know families who are devastated by treatment like this. So in meeting with some people today, we're going to start going to city council and looking at victim advocacy, victims' rights laws. You know, we have Marcy's law, which is supposed to be victims' rights, but it doesn't seem to apply to Tulsa police. So I'm going to start looking at SOP standard operating procedures and, and you know you know there's hope with this new DNA um, and and they've said it before on news so I'm not disclosing anything that hasn't been disclosed but it's underneath the fingernails you know this should have been sent off first um, but it probably will be our killer and a lot of people think they're just digging in their heels uh, because they're just waiting for this to be analyzed, but there's so many other things like the envelope, which could change her time of death, the ME that was there during her murder, the autopsy has issues. There's so many things. I, it, it's a very confusing case, you know. Um, and the, the envelope you're talking about when she sent a letter to her friend, a card to her friend, and the date of the, the receipt was technically after the 27th the envelope is um it was 
a card she sent to her grandfather every year. And my ex-husband, who I divorced way back in 89, um, who was down in Florida, and Brittany was in school in Florida for a year, um, said a week after he returned from the funeral, he received in the, in the mail. He never told me about it till just this past January. Um, and what it was was a birthday card. Um, and the issue with it is that it had a stamp on it, a machine-made stamp, not a stamp that you put on the envelope and then it's postmarked. This was something either made from a kiosk or the post office. It's a mechanized stamp. It's a, 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 a form stamp that you have to put in a machine to get. And that date said September 29th at a certain time. The ME says she was probably dead sometime between, like I said at the beginning, 9, 9 p.m. on the 27th till 8 a.m. on the 28th. So when I got that, I was like, so that's almost two days after what time the death time is, you know. So I wanted to share it with the media and the head of homicide and the detective came out and the head of homicide said, oh, you know, you don't need to share it with media. And I said, why? And he said, well, you know, who's going to remember mailing an envelope 19 years ago? And I said, well, you know, if I mailed an envelope and then two days later I learned that somebody died or was murdered, I think I remember mailing it and stuff. And then the next thing he said, well, you know, it's not going to make any difference. But they, they took the envelope. And the one thing they said to me is don't show a picture of it. So I haven't shown a picture of it. They, nobody knows what size it is or, you know, what the address is or what the color is or even what the stamp looks like. But that could change her time of death because – and the reason I want to go to media is I don't know all friends. Maybe somebody remembers mailing it and then it wouldn't change her time of death. But if we can't find somebody who mailed it, does that mean there's a possibility that she could have been alive? And then when I went to the media, all the stations here, some, a few people, and they supposedly called the detective, they called me first, but they said, you know, I thought I was crazy, but I thought I saw her a day after she was killed. And so there's all these questions about timeline. So the, the envelope has been sent off, supposedly, to the FBI, and it's being analyzed. So it's being analyzed after my ex already said um, that multiple people in his family, because he brought it to his father, who was still alive, and to show him the card, but he wanted to keep it himself because he had just returned from Brittany's funeral here, you know, and stuff. And so he and all his family touched it. You know, maybe they can pull some fingerprints off of it, but it's going to be the whole family's fingerprints. Maybe they can see if Brittany licked it, you know, and it had it, some of the words in it. I can't say, but, you know, it just it was very poignant because she was worried that she had missed her grandfather's birthday. She really missed her grandfather's birthday, you know, and stuff. But my ex has not been called about it. None of the people who sent me the tip about it, possibly seeing her, have been called. Um, you know, we... Uh, Mac, Cheryl McCollum, and another 
investigative reporter, Andy Coates, uh, who has done a lot of investigative reporting. They're my behind-the-scenes team. They have gotten copies of the autopsy. You know, we're wondering why certain things look odd in the autopsy, you know. Um, I, didn't, I know I'm going all over the place, but the ME who did the autopsy had been fired from his job in Arizona, was hired in Tulsa, was fired from his job in Tulsa, and Tulsa um, layup, I think at some point after she was murdered, was under federal oversight or something. And, you know, and maybe everything was fine, but, you know, there's just, there's just all this craziness. And the problem is, is that Tulsa police, when I have questions, will not communicate with me, you know, and I mean, at all, to tell me I'm wrong, to tell me to stop doing something. It, it's just crazy. And to the point that I'm in my meeting today, I've talked with some people and we're going to be going to city council because city council is the boss of Tulsa police. And, you know, I don't fault the detective. He is probably better than my second detective was not my first, but he's, he, he is being overseen by hands that are telling him, don't email me back. Yeah. I was able to talk to him on the phone today. First time since February. Um, but they they tell me when I send emails every three weeks or so to try to get something, they say that um, we all read the emails and who's ever available will respond. Well, I've gotten five emails since April 8th, two from him, two from the deputy chief, and one from the head of homicide, and that was beginning of September. And, and most of the time, it, it's nothing. I mean... And I even say to it, just tell me you have nothing. Just tell me, well, you know, we're working hard. Just acknowledge, you know, um, this was the first time that the detective, I just talked to him today, said, because I had written them that I was on a um, caravan, that I had the medical emergency. It was the first time he even said, I hope you're doing better, you know. I mean, I wrote them on the anniversary and said, thank you for 19 years of dedication to this case. Nothing else. Nobody responded to that. I mean, it's almost, I mean, I had the head of um, OSU's forensics and Dr. Beeman and Dr. Fuji, who's a top um, explosive expert. And both of them say, it's just crazy. It's crazy that they're being punitive. It's crazy that, you know, they're being this way. But, you know, we have to wonder, are they doing this to other people? And I know this case is all over the place. You know, it's it just, it's very confusing. Stay with us. More of the Fox True Crime podcast after this. Do you have a gut sense what happened to your daughter? You know, do, do you think it was a stranger? Do you, do you think it was indeed during that window that the ME said, like, is, has your gut told you anything? You it's hard because every time my gut tells me something, something happens. You know, I mean, I never would have expected that the first DNA was not the killer. Because, I mean, blood and semen from the same person, you know. And so my gut told me, I mean, I even said when I saw the phenotype sketch, that would have been some, my first reaction to it was, that would have been somebody that Brittany would have been attracted to. You know, because the phenotype looked like somebody she would have befriended. 
you know, I initially thought maybe boyfriends, but my gut always goes back to cereal. My gut always goes back to, I don't think she knew her killer, but I think her killer knew her. And there's a number of suspects that if they told me that they were going back over that I think fit that profile, um, you know, security guards who tried to befriend her. There's some murders, some suicides that possibly are murders that happen around that time that all are things that all the cold case investigators who are offering help and the people I just met with today, they're all coming up with great ideas. I don't know if Tulsa police is are looking at it. I mean, on one hand, I know the work in the case. Yeah, you know, I'm not stupid and naive and arrogant enough to think that, oh, they're just ignoring my case. But something odd is going on. You know, some people think they're hiding something. And off and on, that's what my gut says. Only because year, when I switched between Jeff and Eddie for a year, I had Vic Regalado. Vic Regalado is head Tulsa County Sheriff. I didn't realize when I lost him after a year that he was going to become head sheriff. And during that year he was with me, he kept saying, you know, I, and it was because we had so many rule outs with that DNA by nine years. Um, he said, you know, I just wonder if they made a mistake with the DNA, which in the long run they have. I mean, there's certain reasons that now we're probably pretty sure he's not our killer. Although there's a small percentage chance, just, uh, just for a number of reasons. Um, but I've always sort of held it in the back of my mind for a while that, um, he could still be our killer, but there's evidence that's suggesting not now. And as we talk about the amorphous time of death for your daughter, um, you buried her on her 19th birthday, and I noticed that her tombstone, um, it has her birth date, October 4th, 1985, and then underneath it, the date is October 4th, 2004. Can you share about what went into that decision to put those the yeah. date of burial on the... I guess, you know, it was a couple of reasons. One, she was at the medical examiner. She was at the medical examiner Saturday and Sunday. And then we got her back on Monday. And so we were able to get her back on that Sunday. And we had the choice to bury her on that Sunday or the Monday, which was the fourth, you know, because it, it took a couple of days for that. And so for a couple of reasons, I thought, you know, why do it one day before when I'm always going to remember it as she was killed, you know, right before her 19th birthday. So I decided I'm going to honor her in both ways, her birth and her death, because her release to us was really not till the fourth. And because, you know, part of what I do is I have to touch people's hearts and, you know, to get this story known. And I don't know if I was thinking about that then, but I think I possibly was, you know, to be born and buried on the same dates, you know, people aren't going to forget that. You know, I really had no other option because it was one day before or I could have waited to one day after. But why when it was the day that she was brought into the world, if that makes sense? 
I mean, case in point, I, I noticed that. And before I even had read your full story, I saw the photo of you at your daughter's grave and I, I noticed immediately. And yes, it, I was like, oh gosh, she was, you know, she passed on her birthday because that's what those dates imply. So absolutely it's an, it sends a message and is an attention grabber. Um, and amplifies empathy for just your incredible loss. I'm just so sorry for all you've had to go through. And I, I wanted to, before I give you a chance to share final any final thoughts you have for listeners, um, I just wanted to learn a little bit more about Brittany herself. And I, I would love to learn what your daughter was like. Okay. Um, well, Brittany was, I sound like a typical parent, but you know, she was beautiful. She was adventurous. She was extremely intelligent. You know, she, even by age six had like four or five areas on her face and on her shoulders where she had stitches because she was fearless. You know, she would jump in pools backwards. She would try to rollerblade at a very young age and stuff. She, for the first two years of her life, uh, she looked like a little angel. She had no hair and this perfectly round face. And then because of my straight hair and her dad's kinky hair, um, she got these beautiful blonde curls. And if people go to our Facebook page or the website, they'll see she just had these long cascades of blonde curls. She would always learn with her brother. So, of course, she was already learning to read and do things like that early. And so she went to kindergarten and we got a grant to go to a private school in Louisville because we were there for one year between Florida and moving out to Oklahoma. And so she was always a year younger than everybody else. She ended up going to dance for the first 10 years, 15 years of her life, gymnastics, you know, she was extremely intelligent. She would befriend everybody, which may be to a fault, you know, that she befriended her killer. I don't know. Um, but after she died, people would say, you know, I was never part of the popular club and neither was she, but you know, that she would sit with me. She had a lot of study partners, you know, who were known as the geeks and she was, you know, part of them in many ways because she just would study endlessly. She was part of a United Way campaign when I was in Louisville with those curly blonde curls and her pictures were all over buses and airport and stuff. And she just thought she was famous because she was just five or six and she would see her, you know, image going down the street and stuff. Um, she was very close to her brother in the last three to four years. And so he saw her that night at school before she came home and was murdered. She had gone away to college for a year. She got a full ride scholarship to Eckerd College where I went in chemistry. So she was beautiful and yet she loved chemistry. After being there a year, one, she just never really saw her dad. So she said, why am I here if my dad's never going to see me? And then two, um, she was a year younger than all the other freshmen and she really wanted to come home. And so she came home moved into those apartments right next door to her, the high school where she graduated that we never heard anything bad about till after she was killed. Then we heard about the rapes and the attacks that never made it to the PD website and stuff. And so she was going to the junior college um, to just make some extra classes. And then she was going to move up to me in Chandler and go to OSU where I did my master's and PhD. And, you know, she just always 
was befriending people, but she was also like a little girl. And so even at age 18, um, I remember her coming up a few weekends before she was murdered and she was upset about something and she'd been in a party and people were just weird at the party or something. And she was just upset and she laid her head in my lap and she had this little nose, just a little pug nose. And, you know, I just remember every time she got upset, I would just take my hand along her forehead and just go down her nose and tell her everything would be okay, you know. And, you know, that's how, again, because I wasn't allowed to see her at the funeral home because the funeral director thought it would be better if I didn't. Um, that's how I said goodbye to her with a little green blanket over her head and going down her nose. And she was like a little girl that way. And then I remember she was at a concert just a year or two before she was killed. And I guess the crowds just started going in, you know, and really it made her claustrophobic. And so I got, I was there to pick them up, her and her brother, and she was sitting in the ambulance just because she had had a panic attack and she was going, mommy, mommy, at eight, 17, you know, she was going, mommy, mommy, mommy. And I think the one thing in those initial hours after finding she was dead was that that was the one thing I worried, you know, that when she was killed, that she was saying that and, you know, I could only let that torture me for so long, you know, and luckily what I was told by Jeff is that she died instantly because of her suffocation. And so that she wasn't doing that. Um, just another step back that, you know, I've done a lot of trainings with Oklahoma state bureau used to do them for Tulsa police and they wouldn't ask me now. Um, and all across the country I do, conferences at the missing and and other trauma conferences. I'm a trauma psychologist. And the one thing I tell them is, you know, it's so important not only for the communication, but also with families, you have to give them the right to make decisions. And there's a very paternalistic bias of we need to protect you. We need to do that. And I had one director of OSBI go, well, you know, we don't want you to see the body because, you know, the person's usually been dead for a couple of days and it's going to really shock you. And I looked at him and said, you know, we're already shocked that our loved one has been murdered. You need to give us the choice. And the reason I say that is so many people live in these if onlys and it's what will kill survivors of homicide or missing if only i find the killer i'll be okay if only he gets convicted if only i know you know where my loved one is if you live in those if onlys it actually blocks you from living you have to and i this is just my way of surviving is you have to learn to live in spite of in honor of and because of the loss, you know, and you have to learn how to live life amid that loss. Because if you wait for those things, the murder takes away the rest of your life. We'll be right back with more of this story. I want to go back on something that you said a couple minutes ago. So are you saying that there was a pattern of random or stranger rapes and attacks either near the high school at the apartment complex where your daughter lived or in that neighborhood? Yeah, there were some even Jeff learned of initially. There was one where um, there was a young woman in just, there's like 
eight apartments and then eight apartments. And I think it was just the next building down where there was an attempt to break in to that apartment. And that had happened like eight months before Brady moved in. Did the apartment complex tell us about it? No, because they only learned about it, I think, through canvassing the apartment complex um, after the murder. And because when Brittany went to live there, one, we had, she'd gone to that high school right next door to it. So we knew nothing was on the website. And then after her murder, I would park across this four lane road that had the entrance into the apartments. So I would park my car at this four lane road so that my car could be seen people driving in and out. And I had a number of people say, yeah. And this was like maybe eight years later saying that, you know, I had lived there. One person said, you know, um, there were some uh, maintenance people that kept being around the pool, you know, and every time somebody said something, I would send it to the police, you know, especially with Jeff in those early years. Um, but even afterwards, um, I had met these two young women who, it, it was after Brittany's murder, but who knew that this guy was attempting to break in their apartment and he lived across from them and they had even caught him one time and that the apartment complex wouldn't let them break their lease, you know, and the apartment complex for two years, I kept posting posters and the apartment complex started kicking me off the apartment complex saying I was trespassing. So, um, yeah, the apartment complex was very secretive. You know, we've since found people who have been arrested and stuff who were family members. Jeff was really good about that, of looking at family members who also were visiting relatives. And there's one or two uh, suspects, you know, that Jeff had said they should go back and look at. But because of that DNA being the person who we say is not the killer – because we ruled out all these people, why aren't they looking at them again? Or are they looking again? And, you know, I mean, off and on I've been told, oh, well, we already looked at all of them. But you looked at them with the original DNA. There's just, it's hard because there's so much secretiveness or lack of communication to the point of nil, you know, um, and they try to say it's because they're busy. They're losing. They can't even fill their spaces. You know, he, that, the detective told me he can't, I said, uh, maybe I need to do a fundraiser so you can get more cold case detectives. He said, we have detective slots that aren't even being filled all across. I mean, Tulsa police is losing a lot of people. And yet when they picked up the envelope, they had three officers come to get the envelope because they will not talk with me. If I come down there, they make me have a victim's advocate sitting in the room with me. I train victim advocates, and one thing you don't do for survivors of any type of crime is you don't force them to have a victim advocate. But I was told that I can't meet with them unless the victim advocate is in there, and that's a CYA. There's just too many things, and because they don't communicate, is it just circumstance? Is it the way they treat everybody, or is it me that they're afraid of? And they should be. And I just want to underscore for listeners, when you mentioned parking your car at the entrance to the apartment complex, it's because your car is wrapped in your daughter's face um, so that you are constantly asking for tips and information if anyone has it that they can submit. Um, Dr. Zingman, is there anything else that you'd like to share with listeners before we close today? Um, 
just that no idea is silly. I don't care if I've heard it before. You know, if people send me ideas or tips or thoughts or whatever, um, it means people are thinking about the case. My Caravan to Catch a Killer tours, which I've done over 300,000 miles on 23 tours, the first ones were about tips. And it's the car, you can go to Facebook or our website and see it. Um, this is the fifth car wrapped. But the last... 10 years of my caravans have become more and more about every city I go to trying to find cold case families because so many of us are the untold stories. It's great when these national stories go, um, you know, that are well known that they talk about at crime con and everything like that. Um, and even our story got told and we're not well known, but there's so many families that the heart just aches in each of these cities that don't get their stories told. So now when I go to a city, I try to find the families before I get there. If I don't, then I ask media to do a story to help me uh, find it because, you know, our case may never be solved and I can't base my healing on that, but I'm never going to stop trying because her killers, probably other people's killers. And if nothing else, if people hear my story and it gives them a little bit more courage to have their own voice, then I've done something, you know. And so that's the other thing. If you know of anybody who has a cold case who is just feeling silenced or whatever, let me help. Send me your story. Um, you know, this story has so many twists and turns and half of them, you know, it just takes too much time to share. But no family wants to ever lose a child. But when certain criminal justice groups te treat family members as an enemy, that's just not right. I'm going to survive it, but we are not the enemy. We are friends. We are wanting to solve the case. We, even it shows that if you bring families into the fold, sometimes they remember things later. I just remembered that Brady had a laptop. And so now we're looking into that. I mean, if you talk with people, you know, and treat them as humans, you know, but this shouldn't be happening. What's happened with Tulsa police these last three years. And I'll fight it just to help others. Thank you, Dr. Singman. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for your advocacy. You are making such a difference in the lives of so many families. I have no doubt. Well, thank you. I mean, what you all do is the true advocacy because you're putting voices out there and I can never repay you for that gift. I mean, this is such a gift for me. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. If you have a story or topic you want to hear on the show, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at truecrimepodcast at fox.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.